last year after Christmas, because by the way, right after Christmas is the best time to buy Christmas stuff, uh, we bought this uh, like a wooden box, and uh, it's kind of a very like decorative box, and it has, it's numbered, has all these different, inside this kind of wooden thing, it's got 25 little boxes, you know, 1 through 25 for the 25 days leading up to Christmas, and then there's uh, there's like these little cubbies, and so you can just open each little door, like it has, you know, door number one, two, three, four, anyway, and then what you're supposed to do is put some stuff in there, like for the kids, uh, leading up to Christmas, then on day 25 is kind of the biggest one, and then you can put some stuff in there, so um, we put it out, but we hadn't actually had time to put anything in there, and so Mia would go through it, and she would just start opening the doors, and um, there would never be anything in there, so one night, everybody had gone to sleep, and I was still up, so I opened the pantry, and I find this bag of uh, Hershey's Kisses that we still had left over from uh, Halloween. And so I, I decided, I said, oh, there, there wasn't that many in there. So I, I get from like number eight, because uh, it was the, the night of the seventh. So I get to like number eight, and then I go all the way through 24. There's nothing to the 25th. I have to figure something out. But anyway, so I get all the way through 25th, uh, 24th. So anyway, uh, the next morning... Mia wakes up and decides, I, I didn't say anything to her, I was planning on it, but she just decides to start opening the little doors on this, on this big thing. And so she opens one, two, three, four, five, six, seven. She opens up door number eight and she sees a Hershey's kiss. I mean, she starts jumping up and down. She starts going crazy. And, and I'm like, and she says, Bobby, there's chocolate in the box. There's chocolate in the box. And I said, Mia, that's wonderful. Um, I wonder how it got there. And she says, well, Bobby... I'm a really good girl. And so what happens is, is that if you're a really good girl, the wise men come to the house at night when we're sleeping, and then they put a piece of chocolate in the box for us because I'm really good, because this chocolate is just for me, because I'm really good. And I said, wow, that's, that's, uh, that's really interesting, and you're kind of blending like four stories together. And, uh, and, and, and so, but, so that's the thing. It, it, they show up because, once again, that she's good, and so that, that's why the chocolate appears. Well, it, I understand that, that, you know, when you're a kid, you're, you're trying to understand your world, and that's what you do. Uh, we do the same thing, just in a different way. Um, some of you know I'm, I'm a big baseball fan, and uh, in 2004, the Red Sox won the World Series for the first time in 86 years. Uh, so it was kind of a big deal. Um, and uh, if you're not... Uh, aware of how that whole thing transpired, um, when I they had they were down three games to zero in the American League Championship Series, and then they had been game three was an absolute blowout. I think it was like nineteen to six or something was the score, and so the next night they won. And because you know, if you remember, if you're a baseball fan, you know that the playoff games don't even get started until like eight thirty nine o'clock. So the, the games were ending at like you know one two in the morning, and uh, so they won game four uh, in the 14th inning. Uh, I'm sorry, in the 12th inning. And then they won game five uh, in the 14th inning to make the, 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 to make the series three games to two. And so the, as the games were on late, I had my pajamas on and, uh, for both nights. And so I came to this realization that they came back and won the night that I was wearing my pajamas, which meant apparently these are lucky pajamas. So the next night, um, this is a big game, game six. I mean, I, it wasn't even an issue as to what I was going to wear. I mean, the game could have been played at noon for all I cared. I was going to put on my pajamas and sit in the same spot I had been sitting in because apparently there was something happening 
with the pajamas I was wearing, the spot I was sitting in, and what happened when I watched the game. So, game six, game seven, throughout the entire World Series, I wore the same pajamas, sat in the same spot as the Red Sox went on to win the World Series. I wouldn't even let my wife wash the pajamas over the course of like these like eight or ten days because I thought that something was happening and I thought if they, she washed them, it might lose some of the good mojo that was going on with the, with, with the pajamas. So I said, listen, I can't even, I just can't risk it. And um, <clears throat> now, <clears throat> you know, when you start thinking about these things rationally, they really don't make any sense. Uh, and I will readily admit that it doesn't make any sense to think that some guy in Florida wearing a certain type of pajamas is actually influencing games that are being played in Boston, St. Louis, and later on in, in, in New York. Uh, or uh, Boston, New York, and then later on St. Louis. But, you know, if you think about it, like, sports fans do that, right? I mean, we've got to sit in a certain spot, or you wear a certain hat. I mean, there, there are people that, like, they wear a certain jersey because every time they wear the jersey, their team wins. There's people that they won't turn on a certain television in their house because the last time they watched a game on that TV, they blew a 20-point lead or something. And like, I can't watch TV. And everyone in the house is forbidden from watching tell a, a, a sports of sporting event on that television. It's just and it's the weirdest stuff. But I don't, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. But, but it's like, you know, uh, I think about like people who gamble, you know, and they'll, they'll take like they'll blow on the dice. Because that really changes it. Or they'll ask someone else, you know, lady luck, blow on the dice, you know, because, oh, it, 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 what, what is this? Or let me let me hit a little closer to home. Um, sometimes we'll think that we're more spiritual if we wear a certain type of jewelry. We'll think that we're more spiritual if we kiss a certain type of jewelry when something happens. We'll say, I know nothing bad could ever happen to me if I was wearing this or I had my little trinket in my pocket or I had this little charm that, that I wear. And there's never anything that could possibly go wrong. Nothing bad that could happen to me if I had this. And here's the thing. Underneath all of that, underneath waking up because you're good, you get chocolate, waking, uh, watching a game wearing a certain piece of clothing or hat or, or in a certain spot, thinking that nothing bad will ever happen to you because you've got something in your pocket or something around your neck, underneath all of that is a very similar type of belief. Um, it's a belief that there are certain things that I can do that will force God to respond a certain way. And I just want to tell you, and this is what I really want to drill down on for the time that we have together, and that is, it is a, this is a very unhealthy place to live. And here's the reason why. The reason why is, is that if we live here, right, this, we will at some point, because we will say, I did this, I did this, I did this, I did this. Now God owes me that. And we will begin to think that God owes us something because of what it is that we're, that we're, that we're doing. See, I did this, this, and this, so now God is obligated to give me that. And I mean, you know, I, I was good. So obviously I deserve some chocolate. I, I wore the right thing. So obviously the outcome that I want should take place. I mean, it's the exact same thing that we do. Now, I tell you all of this because we're entering this very unique section in the book of Judges that we've been studying over the last couple of months. And I just want to tell you right now that this, these last five chapters in Judges are some of the most bizarre chapters in all of the Bible. Um, I've been a Christian now for more than 18 years. I've only heard two pastors. And once again, I went to school, got a theology degree and all that. And I've only heard two pastors ever 
in my life as a Christian ever even teach on these chapters. And there's a reason. It's because they're completely bizarre. It's because um, it's very difficult to make sense of and because none of it really makes sense. There's no hero. I can guarantee you're pretty much going to hate everyone in the story. Um, and, and the reason is, is because everybody in the story that we're going to read has rejected God's authority in their lives and they're pretty much doing whatever it is that they please. And the reason is, is the reason they've rejected God's authority is because they don't want to relinquish the, their own control. And so they won't do life God's way, so instead they end up living these very, very sad lives. There's this past, this phrase that's going to come up over and over in these last few chapters of Judges, and we're going to take 17 and 18 this week, and then next week will be 19, 20, and 21. And, um, but the, the, there's this phrase that keeps coming up, and you will see it in the first part of chapter 17. I put it in your notes. It just says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right, In his own eyes. And what we're going to see is people that are trying to create this transactional relationship with God. They're saying, God, I'm doing this. Now you owe me that. God, I have this. I bow down to this. So now you owe me that. And I'm telling you, I understand why some people skip over it. I believe we can't skip over it. Because listen, I think what's so important for us to realize is that as difficult as these passages are, There's such things that are so important here because sometimes we live here. Sometimes we're in the place where we try to do this so God will do that. And really, there's a word for that. It's called manipulation. And we're essentially trying to manipulate God to have him do what it is that we want him to do. And so we will do our ritual so that he is now forced to do what it is that we want him to do. And we're going to see these ways that they just try to continually manipulate God in these chapters. And listen, if we, I think at some point in time, we will all wonder why God is doing what he's doing. And sometimes we will try to resort to saying, but God, I did this, so now you owe me this. And here's what I want to do. If, if you're not there, you might be there at some point. And, I, and I, I need to share this with you so that you know what to do if you ever get there. And if you are there. I want to help you navigate through this so we can find our way back to where it is that we need to be. So let's look at chapter 17 of Judges in verse 1. It says, Now there was a man from the mountains of Ephraim whose name was Micah. And he said to his mother, The 1,100 shekels of silver that were taken from you on which you put a curse, even saying it in my ears, Here is the silver with me. I took it. And his mother said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my son. So when he had returned with the 1,100 shekels of silver to, uh, to his mother, the silver from my, uh, his mother said, I have wholly dedicated the silver from my hand to the Lord for my son to make a carved image and a molded image. Now, therefore, I return it to you. Thus, he returned the silver to his mother. And then his mother took 200 shekels of silver and gave it to the silversmith. And he made it into a carved image. And a molded image, and they were in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine, and he made an ephod, and household idols. And he consecrated one of his sons who became his priest. In those days there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. If you pause there and give me your attention. I want to, excuse me, I want to drill down on this and talk about three things in particular 
that, that we try to do and the same thing that these guys try to do. Let me give you the first question that, that, that we need to ask ourselves, and that is, am I worshiping God my own way? Am I worshiping God my own way? Uh, I'll explain it to you this way. Several years ago, probably about 12 years ago, my wife um, got pneumonia, and uh, she was in bed for about six weeks, about a month to six weeks. And now, now here's what you got to understand. And it was like literally you're in bed, can't, you're, not, you're not cooking or whatever. Um, I don't know how to cook, all right? I know how to make rice. I know how to fry an egg. I can heat up a frozen pizza. That's as far as I go. You know, that's like the one cooking show I could do is like that one I, where I made rice, fried an egg, and then I, uh, I, I, made a, I made a frozen pizza. But one night I get home and, uh, you know, I, I was running a college at the time. So I get home and uh, I threw a Red Baron, you know, frozen pizza in the oven. And then I made a can of Boston baked beans. And uh, which, you know, as you know, is an excellent combination. You go to a pizza place and like, I'll take a side of baked beans with that. And... Uh, and so what happens is, is that um, we, I, I bring them out to her and my wife, who's like an incredibly good sport throughout, through this whole thing. I mean, she did not really complain one time and she made fun of me a little bit, but she didn't complain uh, at all at what it is that the stuff that I made because she knew that I was trying. But what, when, I, I remember that night uh, what I made because she said to me when I said, you know, hey, dinner is served. And she said to me, she said, honey, you really treat me like a goddess. And I said, really, why do you say that? She says, because you present me with a burnt offering every night. Um, and uh, I thought she was mocking me. But, and, uh, but, you know, here now, let me just tell you the weird part of that. The weird part of that is um, in all of the nights that I made dinner, I never really asked her what she wanted. I just kind of went with what I knew how to make and then what I was in the mood for. I made pizza and Boston baked beans. She said, now, why would you make these two things together? And I said, well, I was in the mood for both. And it just kind of made sense to, to, to make both. Now, if you're sick, like, usually the doctor isn't going to say, like, you know, the more beans you can have, that's really the best thing. If you have pneumonia, you know, they're going to say things like soup, mashed potatoes, whatever. But I, I never, you know, I was 24. I thought I knew everything. And, uh, and so I just kind of made... Her, what I wanted, you know, and, uh, and, and I tell you that because I, I think there really is a, a parallel because sometimes we can do this with God. We can do this with God, and that is we decide that we're going to worship God our own way instead of saying, God, what is it that, you know, I mean, the, the Bible has laid out how God wants us to worship him. We can have it. And we can say, yeah, but here's the thing. I'm going to go ahead and do it my way because I've got my own ideas as to how this this thing uh, should work. But but here's really what the truth is. If he's God and we aren't, then we should be worshiping him the way that he prescribes that we worship him. You see, the Bible says that the believers got together every week. That's why we get together every week. But see, sometimes what will happen is, is that we'll decide something else. We'll say, yeah, once a week just seems like a lot. I'm kind of more on like the once a month, once every six weeks um, kind of plan. And, you know, you can decide to do that. Because this is America, and you can pretty much do whatever you want as long as it's not against the law. And, um, and, but here's the thing. Just recognize you're not worshiping God's way. You're worshiping your own way. Um, when the Bible talks about tithing, that is giving 10% of our income to God, um, we can say, well, I don't like that, and I, I've got to come up with my own way. Well, that's fine. But you just recognize that it's not God's way. You're doing it your own way. When the Bible says for us to use our gifts and talents 
that he has given us to serve God. And, and if we decide, yeah, I know I could do that, but I've kind of got a better idea as to what I could do with my gifts and talents because I'm really busy. Well, once again, what are we doing? We're, I'm just telling you what it is. We're just deciding to do this our own way. And, and the truth of the matter is, is that our role is not to worship God our own way. Our role is to worship God the way that God wants us to worship him. And there's a reason for that, which I'll tell you in a moment. But see, Micah is making this idol um, and his, with, with the money that his mom gave him. And it sounds like, hey, that's good. He's going to worship in his house. That's great. It's not great. It's not great because God has already spoken to that, that it's like this is not the way that I want worship to go down. In fact, it says this. I put it in your notes in the book of Deuteronomy. It says this. <clears throat> it says, but you shall seek the place where the Lord your God chooses out of all your tribes and put his name for his dwelling place. And there you shall go. There you shall take your burnt offerings, your sacrifices, your tithes, your heave offerings uh, of your hand, your vowed offerings, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. And there you shall eat before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice in all to which you have put your hand, you and your households, in which the Lord your God has blessed you. And you shall not do as you are doing here today. Notice this. Every man doing what is right in his own eyes. For as yet you have not come to the rest and in, in the inheritance which the Lord your God is giving you. But when you cross over the Jordan and dwell in the land which the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, and he gives you rest from all your enemies round about so that you dwell in safety. Then there will be the place where the Lord your God chooses to make his name abide. What's he saying? He's saying this. He's saying you don't do what you want. When you come into the land, the children of Israel were leaving Egypt. They were coming into the land of promise. He says right now people are doing what they think is right in their own eyes. But when God sets the place to worship him. And when they came into the land, there was this place called Shiloh. That was the place where the tabernacle was. If you wanted to worship God, you went there. But once again, Micah, his mom, they're saying, well, you know, that just seems really far. I mean, it's like three exits up. You know, who wants to go that far? And then, you know, just I don't really like the times that they're doing this. And so they just decide that they're now going to create their own way to worship God. And he's, but here's the, re, the thing, is that their desire to do that is actually contrary to the heart of God. Because our role is not to worship God the way that we want. It's to worship God the way that he's already prescribed for us to worship him in the scriptures. Listen, if you're married, your role is not to love your spouse the way you want to be loved. It's to love them the way they want to be loved because we receive and give love differently. And see, and by the way, let me just say this. The reason that God wants us to worship him a certain way is not because he's on some kind of, you know, ego trip. It's because when we worship God the way that God has prescribed, it aligns our heart with his. It changes us. And instead of when I worship God my way, it makes God more like me. When I worship God his way, it makes me, it makes us more like him. And that's the goal that God has for you and me is to make us more like him. Well, look at what happens in the story in verse 7 of Judges 17, it says, Now there was a young man from Bethlehem in Judah, of the family of Judah. And he was a Levite, and he was staying there. And the man departed from the city of Bethlehem in Judah to stay where he could find a place. 
And then he came to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah as he journeyed. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite from Benjamin in Judah or Bethlehem in Judah, and I am on my way to find a place to stay. And Micah said to him, dwell with me and be a father and a priest to me. And I will give you 10 shekels of silver per year, a suit of clothes and your sustenance. So the Levite went in. Then the Levite was content to dwell with the man and the young man became like one of his sons to him. So Micah consecrated the priest and the young man became his priest and lived in the house of Micah. And this is key, verse 13. And then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will be good to me since I have a Levite as priest. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the second question that I want us to answer. And that is, am I trying to manipulate God with my actions? Am I trying to manipulate God with my actions? I want you to think about that last phrase that Micah uh, gave that last phrase where he says, now I know that God is going to bless me. It's like him saying, see, I've done all these things right. And now I, God is obligated to bless me because, hey, I've got a Levite as a priest. I mean, this is like the, the this is the linchpin as far as how I know that God is going is, is going to bless me. I mean, there's no choice in the matter. But let's dig into this a little bit if we can. Uh, it says that this Levite was from. Bethlehem. Now you say Jesus was in Bethlehem. That sounds like a good place to be from. Well, not a bad place to be from unless you're a priest. When the children of Israel came into the land from Egypt, they they came into this land, the land of Israel, and God divided up the land of Israel for all the tribes, except the tribe of Levi, the priestly tribe, because they were all the other tribes were given an inheritance. And what God said to the Levites was, I will be your inheritance. And they were given no um, in, they were given no inheritance in the land of Israel. But what God did is that he set up 48 different cities in the land of Israel where the Levites could dwell. The problem is Bethlehem is not one of them. Bethlehem is not one of the cities where the Levites were supposed to dwell. So now the question is, what is a guy who's a Levite dwelling in a city that he's not supposed to be dwelling in? Why is he from there? Well, may, why is it that he's not doing what it is that God asked him to do? And why is it that he's leaving trying to find someplace else to stay? And so he's there and, and he's and, and now he and he moves in with Micah to now begin to be the priest for this carved image, which he was never supposed to be in the first place. So let's see if we get this all together. Micah's in sin for building the shrine and building the idols in his house. The Levites in sin for living for living where he's not supposed to live. And then he decides to be the priest of this guy instead of being a priest of God in Shiloh where he's supposed to be. And then after all of this, these two guys all doing what God doesn't want them to do. The, what the equation equals in Micah's mind is now that we've all done this stuff, that's not really what God wants us to do. Now I know that God's going to bless me. Huh? I mean, how does that exactly work? And, and how this happens it's what happens when you try to manipulate God. Let me read you this passage out of the Psalms in Psalm 50. It says, you hate my instruction and you cast my words behind you. When you see a thief, you join with him. You throw in your lot with adulterers. You use your mouth for evil and harness your tongue to deceit. You sit and testify against your brother and slander against your own mother's son. And here's what God says. When you did these things and I kept silent, you thought I was exactly like you. 
you to think about that for a minute. God's insight in these verses is incredible. He's saying that we try to manipulate God because we think that he is like us. What does that mean? It means that we think we can manipulate God because we have the ability to manipulate other people. Think about it. We try to buy God's favor by doing good things. So we do the right thing. And um, so that means that nothing bad should ever happen to us. I mean, we showed up at church. So how could we possibly get a flat tire on the way home? I mean, how could a God of love allow that to take place? A bit why? Because, I mean, we're doing the right thing. So how could it possibly happen that while we're doing the right thing, something bad actually takes place? I mean, so you gave to the church for the very first time and then you, you got laid off the next week. That could never happen, right? And uh, what are we doing? We're creating a God in our image. And he, this is what happens when you create a God in your own image. He's always smaller than you. He's always smaller than me. Why? Because the creation is never bigger than the creator. And see, what happens with the gods that we create um, is that we think that God isn't any smarter than we are. Let me explain that for a minute. Um, Because there's we don't believe that there's any reason as to why bad things could happen to a good person. And because we can't think of a good reason for something bad to happen to a good person, that means there is no good reason. Um, and so because there's this belief that we have that God isn't really any smarter than we are. Um, or maybe we could believe that or maybe we could believe that if he really is God, then maybe there are things that will happen in our lives and things that we will see in our lives that will make no sense to us. Things that make no sense to us and things that will never make sense to us. But to him, in the eternal scheme of things, it's the only thing that makes sense. I'm going to read you two verses. Um, They're both in your notes. I'm going to read them. They're from two different books in the New Testament, but I want to read them both um, and then give you a little commentary. Here's what it says. This is 1 Timothy 1.17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to God who alone is wise, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. And then it says in Romans chapter 11, it says, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who has been his counselor? Now think about that, which is, think about what's being said here. The verse tells us that some things that we normally don't think about. The first is this is that God is the only one who's actually wise. You know what that means? Everyone else, including us, gets put in the category of unwise. Well, I think I'm pretty wise. Well, God is the only one who's actually wise, according to this verse. So that means that there there's some areas where we're just unwise. The Romans verse tells us that God's ways are past finding out. That is, that it is beyond our resource, our mental resources and our, 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 our physical, um, faculties to be able to even understand what it is that God's doing sometimes. And that's why God offers this rhetorical question, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? I mean, I've never been in my office and God's never shown up and laid down on the couch in my office and just like shared his problems with me and just said, I'd really love your advice. Right. I'm not his counselor. None of us are his counselor. 
None of us could even understand what's happening in, in, in the mind of God. Why? Because he's so much bigger, so much greater, so much wiser, so much more powerful than we could possibly even imagine. And there are things that happen in this life that are beyond our ability to understand. And no amount of research is going to figure it out. That's why his ways are past finding out. I'm at Thanksgiving and uh, I'm, I'm sitting down and uh, my daughter is sitting on, on my knee and we're talking. And then um, my cousin, I have a cousin that passed away about uh, five months ago. And um, he, uh, his son, who's five, um, comes over and sits, um, sits on my other knee. And he says to me, um, he says, Uncle Robert, um, did you know my, did you know my dad? And I said, yeah, I knew your dad. I said, I grew up with your dad. And I love your dad very much. And, uh, and so then we started talking about some things. And, and then he just hopped down. And then he just kept going, you know, yeah, this is what kids do. You know, they talk serious for a second. And they hop down and just go play or whatever. And I started thinking about that, you know. And I'm, I'm holding my daughter really close after he, uh, he jumps down. And then she wanted to play. And then so she went and, and, and went and played with with her cousin and um you see i don't understand that i don't understand how god takes a 37 year old father of three i don't understand that um and see and sometimes people say but see god if you just you know and they'll just try to give me some really lame explanation and see there's just no explanation that's going to make sense to me and um you know i became a christian at 19 years old and I have spent the last 18 years of my life serving God. Um, I, I could have gotten a, a college degree in anything, and I got a degree in theology. Um, and, and I'm telling you that there's no explanation that makes sense to me. Because there are some things in this life that are past finding out. And see, and, and here's the thing that's really important for us to understand, is that if you... Get to a place in your life where you believe, if I do this, this, and this, God owes me. You will hit a wall at some point in your life and you will say, God can't be good. Because there's something, see, I did this, this, and this, and there couldn't be anything that happened that's bad. Well, see, maybe there are just some things that just aren't explainable. Maybe there are some things that we're just not going to understand. But we have to separate ourselves from the idea that God isn't any smarter than we are. And understand that God is infinitely wiser than we are. And is actually the only one worthy of the title of wisdom. And if that's the case, then I have to separate myself from this idea. And we have to separate ourselves from this idea that our relationship with God can be something that's just transactional. I do this and I do this and now I get a piece of chocolate because I've been good. See, I wore this and I sat there and now the outcome that I want is supposed to take place. Maybe it doesn't happen that way sometimes. See, let me ask you this. Um, for those of you that, that, that give here, uh, let me ask you this. This is a rhetorical question, but um, I want you to think about why you give. That, you know, I mean, that, that, why it is it you give to the Lord here at, at, at Calvary? And, and sometimes we'll say, um, because I want God to bless me. And, and that's, um, that's a good answer. Not the best answer, but it's, it's a good answer. Um, but let, let me ask you this. 
And this is the thing that's just, and this is just more like a, like a heart check for us. Is it because, like, I'm, I'm going to give because I want God to bless me, or is it I'm going to give because the Bible says that for God so loved the world that he gave? Is it I'm going to give because I want God to bless me, or is it I'm going to give because I'm actually, I've been blessed? You see, if I decide that the only reason that I'm going to give is because, and there's a bunch of verses that will tell you that if, if you give, um, that God will return it back to you even more. I, I recognize all that. But I'm just, let, let's drill down a little deeper than that. What if you gave and God never gave anything to you? What, what, if, what if you gave and your whole financial world turned upside down? And, I mean, would, would something happen where you would start to feel, I got ripped off? Or would, would something else um, happen? Or, I mean, because see, here's what can happen is that I give and then God gives back to me. See, I give and then God gives a little more back to me. And th- why do you give? Well, because every time I give, God blesses me. Then at some point, I reduce my relationship with God and he becomes like a cosmic spiritual version of a scratch off lottery ticket. And see, maybe I give because God saved me because I owe him everything. And if God never did anything else for me, I would still owe him everything. You see, what if we gave and we never got anything except Jesus? Would we say, man, I got ripped off? Or would we say, everything else is really just gravy because God has given to me everything? You see, this is all part of what we've been talking about, this whole idea of having a transactional relationship with God, that I do this and now you owe me. And I do this and then you owe me. And I'm, and I'm, and I'm telling you this, my friends, that if we operate like this, there will come a time where we do the right thing and something that we did not want to happen happens. And we will say, now what do I do? Because now I've built this whole theology I've built my whole life around, if I do the right thing, I get a piece of chocolate. If I wear the right thing, the right thing happens. What happens when it doesn't? Our relationship with God has to be deeper than that. It has to be more robust than that. It's the difference between love and lust. Lust says, I love you because of what you do for me. What real love says is, I love you, period. Well, let me show you what else happens, and I promise to lighten the mood a little bit. Um, Here's what happens. Look at chapter 18, verse 1. In those days there was no king in Israel, and in those days the tribe of the Danites was seeking an inheritance for itself to dwell in. For until that day, their inheritance among the tribes had not yet fallen to them. And so... The children of Dan sent five men of their family from the territory, the men of valor from Zorah and Eshtol, to spy out the land and search for it. And then they said to them, go search the land. And so they went to the mountains of Ephraim, to the house of Micah, and dwelt there. And when they, they were at the house of Micah, they recognized the voice of the young Levite. And they turned and said, to him who brought you here what are you doing in this place and what do you have here and he said to them thus and so micah did for me he's hired me 
and I have become his priest. And so they said to him, please inquire of God that we may know whether the journey on which we go will be prosperous. And the priest said, go in peace and the presence of the Lord will be with you. So the five men departed and went to Laish. And they saw the people there, how they dwelt in safety as the ma- in the manner of the Sidonians, quiet and secure. And there were no rulers in the land who might put them to shame for anything. And they were far from the Sidonians, so they had no ties with anyone. Then the spies came back to the brethren, their brethren at Zorah and Eshtol and said to their brethren, What is your report? And they said, Arise, let us go against them, for we have seen their land, and indeed it is very good. Why would you do nothing? Do not hesitate. Enter the land and possess it. When uh, you do go and you'll see a secure people in a large land for God that's given them into your hands, a place where there is nothing, where there's no lack of anything that is on the earth. Now, I'm going to fast forward for you a little bit. So they decide that they're going to go. And what, what they do is, is that they go and they, t- they, uh, they get the, the young Levite. They take him. And they say, instead of just being a priest to one man, why don't you be a priest to our whole tribe? Well, he says, okay, that seems like a better gig. But then Micah gets upset and he says, hey, what are you doing? You're taking my priest. You're taking my idols. You're taking my ephod. You're taking all this stuff. And they said, hey, why don't you be quiet before something bad happens to you? You're one person. We're a whole tribe. You do the math. And so, that's, and so now let me fast forward you to verse 27 if you'll turn the page. And here's, here's what, what happens. It says, so they took the things that Micah had made and the priest who had belonged to him and they went to Laish to a people quiet and secure. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and burned the city with fire. There was no deliverer because it was far from Sidon and they had no ties with anyone. And it was in the valley that belongs to Beth Rahab. And so they built the city and dwelt there and they named the name of the city Dan after their father, Dan, who was born to Israel. However, the name of the city was formerly Laish. Verse 30, it says, Then the children of Dan set up for themselves the carved image. And Jonathan, the son of Gershom, the son of Manasseh, and his sons were priests to the tribe of Dan until the day of the captivity of the land. So they set up for themselves Micah's carved image, which they had made all the time that the house of God was in Shiloh. Now, if you pause there and give me your attention, here's the last thing I want to share with you. And that is the last question. And that is, am I testing God with my, act- with my decisions? Am I testing God with my decisions? Um, my daughter is almost four. And uh, she is really, really good most of the time. And, uh, but sometimes she gets like, she's learning a lot about sarcasm. I don't really know where she gets it from, but anyway. Um, but she, so sometimes she gets a little sarcastic and then, her mom will have to tell her if she says something sarcastic to her mom, you know, Carrie will say, Mia, don't sass me, you know, because she gets a little sassy sometimes. And so she'll say, Mia, don't sass me. And so this past Tuesday night, um, I'm giving um, I'm giving the kids a bath. And so my son starts fussing about something because he was already done. So I, I undo the water. The water's draining. And I say, Mia, stay in the tub. I'll be right back. I'm just going to go check on your brother. So I go check on him. He's fine. And then I come back, and there's water all over the floor. And, uh, and I say, Mia, what happened here? And she says, I don't know. And I say, okay, I'm going to leave, and I'm going to come back, and then we're going to try it again. So I leave, I come back, and I say, Mia, what happened? Uh, to the floor. And she says, well, Poppy, um, 
I spilled it. I was splashing and I got very excited with the water, you know, because it's water like the beach. And, um, and, and I tell her, which I'm not even sure she's ever even been to the beach, so that just is another story altogether. And, um, and I, say, I say, Mia, listen, thank you for telling me the truth, but does this look like the beach? Do you see sand and pelicans? I don't really know where I got the pelicans from because they're usually not at the beach when I'm there. But I said, do you see sands and pelicans and, uh, and, 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 and all this? And I'm kind of going on and on about it. I'm like, you know, you just got to pay attention and, you know, you got to think and make good decisions. And so and she says to me, she says, Bobby, don't sass me. And I'm like, I start to laugh because and it's probably not the right response, but it's just really funny. And I start to laugh and I, and I say, Mia, I'm not sassing you. And she says, Bobby, yes, you are. You're sassing me. And, I, and if you don't stop sassing me, I'm going to tell mommy. And I said, um, okay, let's move on. And, uh, and it, was, it was really funny. And I told Carrie that. And, uh, you know, it was weird. <coughs> but here's, here's, I tell you that is this. Sometimes we start sassing God. We start sassing God with our decisions. We start sassing God with our words. We start sassing God with our actions. We'll make decisions that are contrary to God's will and God's word. And then we'll have the audacity to say, God, I need you to bless this. Now, let me explain to you why I say that. The tribe of Dan is seeking their inheritance. I told you that God divided the land up for all the tribes of Israel. And God gave them a certain area that they were supposed to have. But, well, let me show you the map. Um, Now, check this out. You'll see this. The tribe of Dan is right here. This is the allotment that God gives to, um, to Dan. He gives everybody else their, their allotment. You'll see it you're over here. It's right here. Um, now, this is really, really prime real estate. Why? Because last time I checked, anything close to the ocean is prime real estate. And so this is a really, really good area. There's only one problem with this piece of land. It's right just to the south of it is this area called Philistia, which is where a group of people that are called the Philistines live. And they were controlling this area. So for Dan to dwell in this land, there were going to have to be some battles. There was going to have to be a fight for them to be able to wrestle this land away from the Philistines. Well, now generations have gone by and they still haven't been able to defeat the Philistines. They, they haven't really put together a strategy. They haven't really called out to God to defeat the Philistines and work on their behalf. And so what they decide to do is just go somewhere else. Now, here's the deal with the allotments that God gives you. When God gives you, this is your area, this is your land. It's not like you say, well, God, give me what's behind door number two. No, this is it. You've got to figure it out. But they decided, well, I don't really want that. So they wanted to go somewhere else. So let me show you what happens. This is the, another map. And look where they end up going. Instead of going here, which is the land that was originally given to them, they start going north. They keep going north. And then this is where they end up uh, dwelling all the way to the north. north this is the uh, Sea of Galilee. They go north the Sea of Galilee. All, I mean, hunt, you know, several a long ways away from the area in which they had been given. Now, here's the deal. And this is the problem. The problem is, is that later on, every time that they, that when idolatry enters the land of Israel, it enters from Dan. Because what we read is, is that when they first started, from the minute that they settled in that land, the first thing that they did was set up that shrine, that, that image that Micah had built. 
And isn't it amazing that this, what, what this one guy had done, and he gets his priest, and then this tribe takes it. And now it becomes where idolatry enters the land. What they also didn't realize is that later on in 722 B.C., this group of people, the most brutal army that's ever been seen on this planet, uh, that's called the Assyrians. When the Assyrians come, by the way, when the Assyrians invaded a place, many times entire towns would commit mass suicide because they'd rather die than fall into the hands of the Assyrians. They were so brutal. When the Assyrians took over the northern part of Israel in 722 B.C., the first place that fell was Dan. And here's the point. What they thought was a good decision because some random priest who was out of the will of God had said it was okay, wasn't okay. And it ultimately ended up hurting them. And the bottom line for us is that sometimes we do what's right in our own eyes because we would never say it, but what we really believe is that somehow we're smarter than God. And we can't really fathom that God would have a solution that's better than any solution that we've come up with. And what we have to understand is that God sees more than we see. That God operates outside of time and sees beginning, middle, and end as it's happening. He's not waiting for it in real time. He's seen it. And so while we are absolutely obsessed with the present and figuring it out in the present, God is a little bit more concerned in the future and what the end game is, and He's using the present instead to prepare us to become the people that can handle the future. And see, and the weird part is to say, well, He doesn't want Dan to settle to the north. He wants him to settle where they're supposed to settle. Why? Because He knows what's coming. And that it's going to be hard and it's, it's going to be easy now, but brutal later. And he says, why don't you just settle where you want to set, where you're supposed to settle and see what they found was, oh, they struck this very weak people with the edge of the sword and they got to live there and it got, it was very easy, but there were going to be consequences and there would be repercussions later because there's always consequences and repercussions when I don't do the thing that God is asking me to do. And you know what the weird part is? That we'll go outside of the will of God and do whatever we want to do. And just like the people of Dan, I'm sure when they were getting conquered by the Assyrians, they're saying, how could a God of love allow this to happen? It didn't have to happen. If they had just done what they were supposed to do at first, but they decided instead to do what's right in their own eyes. I'm going to say this and then I'm done. Um, Do you know why the first commandment says not to worship any other God or make any other graven images? It's because of this issue right here, what we've been talking about. Because when we make an image of God, we always make him less than he is. You see, we make images that are like us. And and thus we think that God is weak like us. But see, God's goal is not for us to make an image that's like us. Instead, God's goal is for us, for him to... to transform us and make us more like Him. You see, every other culture in the ancient world had images of their gods except Israel. They were to be separate. They were to be different. And, and, and the thing that's important for us to note is that I'm sure there were some people saying, is this how we're supposed to live? Like with this abstract understanding of an invisible God? What God would say is no. But instead, what I want to share with you is that at some point, I'm going to give you the right image, the real image, the perfect image of who I am. In the book of Colossians, chapter 1, it says this. It says, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. 
The reason God told them in the first commandment, do not have any other images, is because of Christmas. Because at the right time, God would send his image, his perfect image, his perfect revelation of who he is, his son, that would reveal God to us. And so listen, we can live one of two ways. We can live in a way where we're trying to manipulate God and thus make him smaller than he really is. Or we can look at God's perfect image, Jesus, and realize the vastness, the glory, and the grandeur of who God is and allow him to change us. Do you know why everyone did what was right in their own eyes? It says because there was no king. When you have no king, the best that you can do is just try to figure it out on your own. But when you decide to make your king Jesus, is what we celebrate here at at Christmas, that the king has been born. When you decide to make Jesus your king, the one who wants to save save your life and change your life and save you from a life of creating God in your own image, and he opens your reality to the hugeness of God it changes everything it changes your life it changes your perspective it changes everything because you can live like they did everyone doing what's right in their own eyes because they had no king or you can live a different way a group of people that have a king who are being transformed it's what the bible says in the book of second corinthians from glory to glory let's pray together Father, we thank you. We thank you for your love, for your grace, for the fact that you don't leave us as we are, doing what's right in our own eyes. Instead, as we submit to you as king, you direct us, you lead us, you transform us and change us into your image. I pray you would continue to do that, God. In Jesus' name, amen.